marking song number 744, isn't it a joyous consideration already today that we've been able to lift our voices together as we have to exalt and magnify the, not only the name of God and His church, but certainly songs that have challenged us just to think about our own homes and our families. As mentioned earlier also today, we're so thankful for the membership at Pippin. We're also thankful for our, our visitors, our guests that have come our way. And it's our true desire that our worship will be, above all other things, acceptable and pleasing to our Heavenly Father. As you can see on the wall to my left, we continue today a series of lessons that we began a few weeks ago, a series of lessons dealing with the family. In fact, in this opening slide, as we basically, extremely briefly, we looked at a lesson that reminded us that God is the one that has the instructions and the considerations concerning the home, and it must be of God if it is to be a happy, appropriate, and a home that is, of course, directed to heaven. And then we looked at the man in the next lesson, the appreciations of what the Bible has to say about the male's place in the home. Following that, we looked at the female's place in the home, the mother, if you please. We found in every case the Bible has spoken with such directness, and even as we sang a moment ago, God give us Christian homes where the father, the mother have attributes like what we've studied. As we come to the lesson from last Sunday, we looked at marriage. We appreciated in that that there is such a high and beautiful consideration concerning it. And oh, how God would ask us to appreciate that one more time. For the strength of our nation, for the strength of our communities, we need marriage to be regarded as the Bible lifts it so highly. Today, as we continue that series, let's come this morning to thinking about children and their position, their role in the family. As we study that, I hope that as you have your Bible, we can look at a number of passages together reminding us about how much God has to say about this subject as well. You'll notice as you come to the middle and bottom of that slide, you can appreciate so very easily how often children find their way into the biblical narrative, either directly or indirectly. And today we'll look at a number of places in which the characteristic of children are lifted to such a high standard. Not only is that a direct challenge to children, but to all of us who are older, that we might recognize what is our responsibility and certainly to do things in the way that God would have it done. Our opening slide. It seems as though maybe it's sad to think that we live in a world where this would be necessary. But isn't it a sweet thing to appreciate how valued the Bible says that children are. Ronald Strong delivered a lesson to us just a few weeks ago concerning, of course, the, the terrible sin of abortion, the characteristics and features of it, and a number of matters that are so very shocking and strange to the mind. Apart from that, though, could we at least for a moment reflect upon what God has to say about the value attached to a child? As you would begin that particular slide with me, go all the way back to the opening chapter in the marvelous book of God. In Genesis 1.28, in the very nature of the sixth day of His creative activity, God fashioned the man and the woman. He created them in His own image. But you'll notice what He said immediately thereafter. He said, subdue or have dominion over the earth, replenish it. 
this man and woman were then given the marvelous consideration and blessing attached to procreation, bringing into the world other human beings. And you'll notice that was a divine command from the God of heaven to Adam and to Eve. Can't we appreciate in it then in the chapters that follow? So many times. Look at how children are described. In Genesis 4 verse 1, when Adam and Eve had their first children, Cain and Abel, you'll notice at the time of their conception, what was it that Eve declared? I have gotten a man from the Lord, she said. She knew exactly the ultimate source of the blessing of that child, a man from the Lord. Isn't it still a sweet thing to consider that God, of course, is the one who in His infinite wisdom has made provision for the blessing attached to the children coming into the world? Not only there, look over in Genesis 25, 21. We remember that Rebecca, at that point in her life, was barren. She had been unable to have children, and yet her husband Isaac besought the God of heaven for a child. Question, who did Isaac go to? Whatever doctoring was available at the time, the text doesn't say anything about him going to a place like that. He sought God's assistance to remove the barrenness of his wife. As you think about that, notice also one more time in 1 Samuel 1.11, another biblical woman found herself in a position not unlike that. Hannah also had been unable to have a child. And you'll notice who she sought through prayer, through service, she sought God's assistance. If you'll give me a child, specifically a son, I'll give him to you. I'll dedicate him, she said in 1 Samuel 1, verses 11 and following. God blessed her by virtue of answer to that. Samuel was born to her. What a great prophet he became. What a great judge he was. All the while, maybe in summary to all those things, we could recollect the closing verse to the 113th Psalm. On that occasion, who is it that allows a barren woman to keep house and to be a mother of children? The text says the Lord does it. Today, as you and I think then about the blessing attached to a child, to children in general, notice how highly the Bible lifts them. Look at some of the following comments on that slide with me if you would. Sometimes as we reflect upon a child... We obviously think about the fact they'll grow and they'll mature and they'll learn and they will become citizens at some point. But let us think also of the ultimate consideration of a child. They are human beings. First and foremost, that means this. They are immortal spirits. Though that child may be age 2, age 4, age 5, age 6, he or she is an immortal spirit. They are made in the image and in the likeness of God. Could you consider these thoughts with me? On that sixth day of His creative work, when He made man in His image, may we not forget God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. And then to say that God is a spirit, John 4.24, is to immediately bring before us the fact that a spirit does not have flesh and bones. Jesus we read about that from the statement in Luke 24, verse 39. Now, pondering that for a moment with me, that means that although this physical body houses or tabernacles an immortal spirit, ultimately the reality of a human being is that eternal, 
immortal spirit. And so that child is an immortal spirit. Oh, it's true that for a while, you and I as parents and as older ones have the opportunity to instruct and to guide and to motivate and to set before them, but ultimately, they're not just a fleshly being. We'll develop that in just a moment, but you'll note this. When is that spirit given? It is not given at the moment the child leaves the mother's womb and is birthed into the world. According to the Bible, that spirit is given by the great God of heaven at the moment of conception. In Zechariah 12, verse 1, and echoed in Hebrews 12, verse 9, we appreciate that as the God of heaven gives that spirit, we notice from that point forward the sweetness, the specialness, and the remarkable character attached to that youth. For those reasons, notice at the bottom, children are said to then be an heritage of the Lord. Don't you love that presentation? Don't you love that statement, that phrase? Children are in heritage of the Lord, Psalm 127, verse 3. Surely, for reasons like that, notice what that word heritage means. It literally means possession. In the literal language, it carries the thought of property or inheritance. The inspired writer thus said, Children are a possession of the Lord. Parents... In the final analysis, they don't belong to you and me. Oh, we have opportunity to guide them, instruct them, mold them, teach them, and motivate them, but ultimately they belong to the God of heaven. He's the one that created their spirit. He's the one that made them. That, of course, places not only a great development upon you and me as we envision children, it, of course, will also lead to some of the later commandments of the Bible touching that subject. Case in point would be this next slide that's before us. As a child enter this world, we understand so very easily and well that the child doesn't have experience. The child doesn't have the wisdom that comes with that which would relate to experience. And so the Bible has a very clear word for all of us that would have opportunity as parents. And what a sweet opportunity it is. Could you revisit with me for a moment? Proverbs 22, verse number 6. Perhaps one of the most well-known passages in that book of the Old Testament, but it simply says, Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. The opening word of that verse is the verb, and it carries with it the thought to train. And you may immediately notice, that children are thus so plastic in a sense that it's possible to mold them, to direct them, to set them on a course which they shall follow in life. And that's taught really in Psalm 27, 127 verse 4. As arrows in the hand of a mighty man, so are children. We all know that an archer can direct that arrow wherever he points the bow. That's where the arrow will go. And so too, by way of a child parent's, and those who are guardians and those who, of course, lead them, they have the opportunity when that child is young to direct and determine the course of that child's life and to train him or her. That training, as you can see, is highlighted in the words of the Lord. They'll go the way that they're directed. I'm reminded of a poem called A Sculptor. I don't know who the author of that poem was, but it has so many interesting thoughts in it. I took a piece of plastic clay, 
and idly fashioned it one day. And as my fingers pressed it still, it moved and yielded to my will. I came again when days were past. That piece of clay was hard at last. The form I gave it, it still bore, and I could change that form no more. I took a piece of living clay and formed it gently day by day and fashioned it with power and art, a young child's soft and yielding heart. I came again when years were gone. It was a man I looked upon. He still that early impress bore, and I could change him nevermore. A lot of truth in that, isn't there? To appreciate the opportunity to mold and set a child on the course of a productive Christian life. Surely in light of those things, you'll notice what seems to go along with this word that was used in Proverbs chapter 22. It said, train up a child. I found it intriguing to notice the Hebrew word that's rendered to train carries with it the thought of dedication. And in fact, it's translated that way in 1 Kings 8.63. When the temple was dedicated by Solomon, that word carries the appreciation of the same word as to train. A child is to be a dedicated individual in the sense that the parent instills within that youth, that babe, the understanding of the training that's necessary to dedicate them to the one who possesses them. That's God. You'll notice with that in mind, as parents, we read in Ephesians 6 verse 4, Fathers, provoke not your children to anger, to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Now, you appreciate in that a heavy responsibility that rests upon you and me as parents. Notice again the particular statement, provoke them not to wrath, to anger, where both words are used, one in the Ephesians passage, one in the Colossians passage. We ought then not to behave ourselves in such a way to discourage them. Remember, the final goal is for them to enter heaven. And if they don't make it, and it's because of us how seriously we fail them. So as we seek not to discourage them, but rather to bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, look at how that follows immediately. The next comment on the slide. To bring them up. Two things are mentioned in the nurture. What does that mean? That's the thought of nourishment. We know as parents that it's our obligation and responsibility to provide their physical needs. That's important and an easy thing to understand. But what about that second word, nurture and admonition? The definition I have written on the slide for each of us to consider. That word admonition carries the thought of the same word we saw back in Proverbs 22, training, discipline, instruction. As parents, are we doing our best to instill within them the thing that's most important? the spiritual training. Recall with me what is said about the, the rearing of Jesus in Luke chapter 2, verse 52. Here was again a boy at the age of 12 when his parents had taken him to Jerusalem to celebrate one of the Jewish feasts, in particular the Passover. We well remember on that occasion that here he was, and ultimately as he was left behind, his family came back and found him. And verse number 52 says that he increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. 
our precious Savior, as He grew into manhood, He maintained association by way of development with God. What about your children, your grandchildren and mine? At the bottom of that slide, might we say this? In Deuteronomy chapter number 6, there's a passage I would invite you to consider with me that again states something so very telling and so very demanding of all of us as parents, but oh, how marvelous the reward that goes with it. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse number 4. I'll read beginning in that verse. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy might. So far, that sounds so strikingly similar to what the Lord said Himself when He was asked what's the greatest commandment. He said, to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's found in, of course, Mark 12, verse 30. But notice Moses wasn't finished. For he continues in verse 6. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart. So first of all, you adults, Moses says, make sure that you have those thoughts embedded in your life, in your mind, and make sure you appreciate and live them. Now the next verse. And thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. Now we notice how powerfully that's asserted. Not only you live it, but you make sure that you teach it to your children. And did you note the adverb that goes with it? Diligently. Don't let it be a happenstantial matter. Don't let it be an optional thing, but diligently instruct them. And he says, when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up, you'll notice every attribute of the day, at least in a general way, is discussed. Mornings and afternoons and evenings. Question to all of us as parents, is your Christianity... Your devotion, your dedication to God, something your children appreciate in a consistent, ongoing, and constant way. Or do they only see it on Sunday mornings? Do they only see it maybe on Wednesday afternoons or evenings? Is our life in Christ something that is set before them with intensity and importance? How often have you and I heard it said? that a child very much not only listens to what we say, but much more valuably watches what we do. And our example will mean much more to them in the final analysis than what, than what we have said. For if what we say doesn't match what we do, then obviously they quickly re recognize there's a problem. Surely as you close that slide with me, our children also, as, we're, as we learned the last couple of weeks, the males, the females, the, that is to say the fathers and mothers, we know that they love their children. We certainly would appreciate that our children need to hear us say that. Make sure your children know that you love them, that they're so valuable to you and that you want them to go to heaven more than anything else. If they appreciate and sense that, then they will understand the intensity that goes with being a dedicated servant to the Master and thus a faithful member of the body. In light of those things, what about Timothy? The example of Timothy. We come to him in the New Testament, and when we arrive at him in the book of Acts, we first encounter what appears to be a relatively young man. 
and yet when Paul came through that area on the second missionary journey, Timothy wanted to go with them. We'll notice that that assertion was made by Paul. He saw in Timothy some potential, some possibility, and he extended the invitation for Timothy to go along. And as a young man, Timothy apparently wanted to go. I wonder what his mother thought about that. Going off on this dangerous journey, going off with these people that we seemingly don't know very well. I believe we know exactly what led to that situation. Because in the book of 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, we notice that Paul makes mention of Timothy's mother and his grandmother, two ladies whose names are Eunice and Lois. And he asserted that in them was an unfeigned faith, a dedicated, genuine faith. And Paul said, Timothy, I'm convinced it's in you too. Isn't that an incredible passage of confirmation concerning the upbringing of Timothy? Later in 2 Timothy 3.15, Paul even was able to make the statement that from a babe, Timothy, thou hast known the Holy Scriptures. What about you and me today is we are parents, and at least with the opportunity to influence that generation that's after us. Have we set before them such that they've known the Holy Scriptures since they were a youth? That's a telling question, isn't it? A challenging question to each of us. And so it is that as we think about our obligation as parents and as those who can instruct and teach, let's come now directly to the children and all of those who have reached the age to pay with some close attention. I hope that you will listen to me very carefully over the next few moments. God, you see, has some things directly He has spoken to you too. It's not that the Bible is only for the benefit of those that are older. It also directly has statements of challenge and encouragement to those who are younger. Let's talk about that for a few moments, really over the last section of our lesson today. I've begun to develop it like this on this slide. There are some commandments, some statements of the Word of God that directly are written for the benefit of those that are children. I say that because I'm sure to your mind and mine comes many almost immediately. As you think about the purview, the fullness of the Ten Commandments, for instance, in Exodus chapter 20, we easily can think about a number of them. Never take God's name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And on down the list we go, and probably we're quick to remember that seems like those are for the benefit of the older ones. What about the fifth of the Ten Commandments? Honor thy father and thy mother. Now that was right in the midst of them, commandment number five. Would you think about that for just a few moments with me? As we often state, the Ten Commandments, that was a command. It was not left as an option, nor was it left as a suggestion. In Exodus 20, verse 12, of course, that statement is found, but it's repeated practically verbatim in Deuteronomy 5, 16. When we begin to ask, what does it mean to honor one's parents? What's involved in fulfilling that commandment? Well, may I suggest, according to Leviticus 19, 3, it involves a healthy respect and fear. A youngster needs to realize that dad and mother control that house. The child does not run it. 
And therefore, they need to respect that which dad and mom say. They need to respect what is dad and mom's ideas concerning things. Furthermore, we notice that that idea of fear is even there. Now, may we say, we do know that perfect love casteth out fear, but we realize that there, of course, is an element in which that fearfulness comes by way of what punishment can be meted out. I know that many, if not all of us, have experienced what a father or perhaps even a mother or a grandfather, someone else who in fact did what needed to be done in providing discipline on a moment of disobedience or foolishness in the mind of a child. Now we notice, I myself often had that consideration of fear. I knew what dad would do and I knew what granddad would do because I had either seen it or I'd experienced it myself. In either case, what a healthy respect that leads in that child. And it's a very worthwhile thing, isn't it? Fully in accordance with that which is the Scripture's presentation. I might invite us to even remember that the law of Moses in Deuteronomy 21 even had a description of what was to happen on on that circumstance when a child acted rebelliously, stubbornly, and refused to submit to father and mother. We remember the frightening characteristic attached to it, for Moses left no ambiguity in it. You can read that if you like in Deuteronomy 21, beginning in verse 18, but the thought was this. If this child, even upon the parent's rebuke, if that child refused to submit, refused to, in fact, bring himself into subjection to what the parents decreed, That child was to be put to death. Capital punishment. Now, if you and I think about the characteristic of how serious was the God of heaven about maintaining order in the family, that's how serious he was. How often today do you and I see the aftermath, the consequences of a child left to himself? His parents don't discipline him. They, in fact, seemingly are not interested in the nature of what he shall or he, she shall become. And we see a child who makes such poor choices so often. Often a disgrace to his own family, the name that he was given, of course. God never intended any such thing. After all, as you and I think about those statements, we notice that children are told these words explicitly. May I ask you to notice Ephesians 6 verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. What a straightforward passage. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. I know that there are times, especially when you reach those teenage years, when you just think you know more than dad and mom do. You think that your experience and your opportunities are such that dad and mom just don't understand. Trust me, young people, they know a whole lot more than at that moment you'd probably expect. And give yourself about another six, eight years, and then you'll realize how much mom and dad knew. You'll appreciate the wisdom that came with their advice, and you'll appreciate that if only you had followed what they'd said. Obey your parents in the Lord. Trust in that which they say. And you'll notice this commandment is given. You'll notice that that commandment is stated. May I ask you to consider 
don't you find in many ways that's an unusual commandment? After all, does a two-year-old, can he read the Bible? Can a three-year-old little girl read and understand the Scriptures? Of course not. You'll notice then apparently what the thrust of that passage is. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. That is something the parents should instill in those youngsters from the time of their birth. So that by the time they get to be teenage years, that those issues never arise. They know that the obedience to parents is tantamount and it is fundamental. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. It's the right thing to do. God said so. As you think about the way that further develops, doesn't it help us to see then that in those years when a child is subject to those parents, what value there is then in the discipline. Let's face it, children are going to make mistakes and they're going to make poor choices and sometimes they're very serious choices. We as parents need to make sure they understand the seriousness and enormity of those choices. That may come with discipline in the form of a spanking, a whipping, and the Bible endorses it. In Proverbs, you'll notice chapter 22, verse 15. We're told, are we not, that a child left to himself will bring his mother to shame. Now, that's a straightforward passage of the Scriptures, isn't it? Leave a child to himself, and if he's left to direct his own path, it's going to be a disgraceful, shameful thing. But rather, that child that's properly disciplined, never abused, but just properly disciplined, you understand what a value it is. Proverbs 19.18, Proverbs 13.24, as well as the remaining verses in Proverbs as I've indicated them. You notice that in those instances... How wise it was to listen to God instructing those things in the days of the long ago. And so as we come really to the last section of our lesson this morning, I would ask that we at least reflect briefly upon some of those young people found in the Bible. And here at Pippin, we're thankful for our young people. We realize what a blessing and how valuable that you are. But we also understand, according to the Word of God, what a great sense of influence you can have upon others around you. Look at just very quickly some of these. Young people don't always make the wrong decisions. Sometimes they make the right ones. And sometimes they do so with courage. We all remember about Joseph. Seventeen years of age. We remember he was sold into slavery by his brothers. And so at a relatively young age, he rose to prominence in Egypt. But you remember that he, of course, refused the, the pursuits of Potiphar's wife. Dan, or rather, Joseph was well-centered in the truth of God, and he would not succumb to those sins, even if it meant his advancement in Egypt. We have to compliment Joseph, don't we? What about Daniel? I would ask you to think about him as well. Though again, a relatively young man. The book of Daniel doesn't tell us his age, but it seems reasonable to, to suppose he was no more than a teenager. And yet he purposed in his heart not to defile himself, though young he was. Later in that same book, cast into a den of lions because of his devotion and dedication to the God of heaven. What a remarkable record. There was his three friends. We remember they too cast into a fiery furnace because of their devotion to God, though young they were. 
We can be impressed sometimes with the straightforwardness and simplicity with which a young person might approach the truth of God. In addition to that, may I ask you to think about both Timothy and Jesus one more time. These which chose so wisely. These which lived so appropriately. Young people strive to live appropriately and wisely. Make good decisions. Follow the instructions of your parents. You'll notice at the very bottom of the slide, there are some clear admonitions given to those that are young. Please listen with care to what God has to say to you. He does know what He's talking about. Case in point, 2 Timothy 2.22, flee youthful lusts. The very statement of the Scripture is there are some pursuits that when you're young, they seem so enticing and so appealing. He says, flee them. Don't you follow them. I know that many of your classmates might. I know many of your friends may be tempted to follow in these pathways, but be strong. As you listen to what God has to say, He's always right. As you flee those youthful lusts, consider Titus 2, verses 4 and 6. Maintain a soberness. That means be a person of good judgment. Don't just make hasty decisions. Think things through. Ask your parents for advice. Ask other trusted individuals. As you listen to all those things, notice in 1 John 2, 14, there are some clear descriptions given to young men. Young men, listen to me, please. You have such an opportunity to be a man, to grow into manhood, and thereby to be the influencing figure in a family. To young men, stand squarely on the Word of God. Isn't it true? Jeremiah said it like this in Jeremiah 10, 23. Oh, Lord, I know that the way of man is not in himself. It's not in man that walketh to direct his steps. Trust in the Word of God. And therefore, in closing that slide, it takes us back to the lesson text of the day. Even a child is known by his doings. Young people, people are watching you. And if you act foolishly and unwisely, and if you act in ways that bring disgrace and shame to your family, again, that reflects so poorly on you, and it reflects poorly on your parents, it reflects poorly on your grandparents. Live wisely. Follow the admonitions of the Bible. Be strong in the faith, and always do the things that God teaches you to do. As we close this lesson this morning, having talked about these things concerning children, we have basically highlighted these things. They are, of course, a tremendous honor and blessing. And we realize, as parents, what an obligation we have to train them. At the bottom of that slide, we've noted that that training so seriously is presented. This very day, of course, we realize being a Christian, that makes the best father and it makes the best mother. And there may be a young person here who you've reached the age of knowing you too need to be a Christian, but you haven't yet. Today, if we could assist you, the gospel call of invitation is extended. The very Son of God died on a cross. He did so that you might have life and have it more abundantly, John 10, verse 10. He did so that you, of course, might live in this life in the way that you should and go home to glory. If today we could be of help to you to become a Christian, you must believe in Jesus, repent of your sins, confess His name as the Son of God, and be baptized. 
And if you have attended to that need, but you need to be rededicated, you need to come back to your first love. Today, we'd be honored to pray to God for you. You need to, of course, repent of sins known publicly, confess them, of course, and God will forgive upon our penitent prayer on your behalf. Today, if we could be of help to anybody, why do you delay? Why not come even now while together we stand and while we sing?